All right, so recap where we're at in the gospel, according to John, just a little bit. We've gone through uh, the first 18 verses, which is the prologue, kind of the, the meatiest, deepest part of the gospel, according to John. And, and then we've started to step into um, some things about John the Baptist. And so we're going to talk a little more about John the Baptist this morning. Um, and uh, so last week when we were, we were talking, what was going on is John got confronted by a select group of Jewish leaders that are kind of like investigators. And they had heard all these things about John the Baptist, that he had been baptizing, that he had been preaching, that he had been doing all these sorts of things. And they wanted to know why he was doing this and who he was. They wanted to know, is he the Messiah? Does he claim to be the Messiah? Uh, Is he the prophet Elijah? Is he uh, the prophet Moses? Who is this guy and why is he doing what he's doing? And we talked about the way that John always deflected glory is something we should look at and try to live in our own lives. That anytime people tried to put glory on John the Baptist, he would always deflect it back to Jesus because really all good things come from Jesus, don't they? I mean, it's nothing really great about us. It's only what Jesus does in and through us that's great. And so just the same as John the Baptist. And and don't forget, John the Baptist, Jesus said, there's no greater man born of woman. So so Jesus had some pretty high things to say about John the Baptist. Honestly, I mean, it tells us that he thought he was a little better than me and you. And so, I mean, I don't know how you take that, but John the Baptist is better than you. I hope you're okay with that. But even, that, even though he was better than you, he still deflected that glory back to Jesus. And, uh, and so that's key that we understand that. So picking up after that, we're going to pick up in verse 29 of verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, um, you can turn there. If you'll stand now in the honor of the reading of the Word of God, if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen for you to follow. We're going to read 29 through 34. We stand in honor of the Word of God because here at Hibernia, we are convinced that the Word of God is the most powerful uh, and, and wonderful thing to ever be put on paper. The next day, so the day after his kind of inquiry investigation, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. We heard him say that earlier in John. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that you speak clearly to us, that you speak louder than me, that we hear from you what you have for us to hear and that we be obedient in what you call us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a couple things before we dive into this that I I didn't put in my outline here, but I want us to look at very briefly is, all right, so 
So the first thing that happens is we see one of the things you may notice different uh, here. Anybody, what did you notice different between this and what you'd see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and, and Luke at this point? We don't, we don't see Jesus' baptism. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about baptizing Jesus here. We've talked about from the beginning that John took a totally different approach to writing this than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. Um, and this is one of the things that, that's so different than the others. He doesn't list it. It's not to say that he didn't do it or say that he didn't witness it, but just there's other things that he wants to focus on here. Um, one thing that I found interesting when I read this is twice John says, not that I knew him or that I did not know him. And part of me, when I first read that, goes, what do you mean you didn't know him? It's your cousin. Like, and I, I think, remember the story? You, we were in your mother's womb and, and, and Mary showed up next to your mom. And, and, and when you were in your mom's womb, you leapt for joy because you knew it was the Savior. And, and you're telling me you don't know this guy? Well, a couple of things with that is one, um, it's quite possible that that was the only encounter that John had with Jesus prior to this, because you have to understand they didn't have nice cars to ride around in. And, and so, yeah, it was his cousin, but you didn't just like in, the, in this harsh Middle Eastern weather, you didn't just take a day trip to go visit your cousins. Um, and so it's quite possible that they really didn't get to visit much after that. But I think one of the points that we need to see here is that, uh, this isn't two cousins conspiring to start some sort of coup against the government. This isn't two cousins that made a plan and one of them said, look, I'll look like a crazy guy and live in the woods and I'll put on some camel hair and I'll start yelling, repent. And then I'll say that there's somebody greater than me coming and then you show up on the scene. Let's train this dove and this dove is going to fly down and land on your shoulder and we can totally run a con game on these, all these people. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is John the Baptist, because check this, if you were to read in, in here, it says, I myself did not, in, in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What he is he talking about? God. God sent him. So we have to make a decision. Are we going to pay attention to what John the Baptist has to say? Because he's sent from God, like the Blues Brothers. He's sent on a mission from God. Much more than the Blues Brothers. But we have to decide, are we going to pay attention to what John the Baptist has to say here about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God is what he says. Now, this is big. Now, we, we have, one of the things we have to understand, and some of the things that John the Baptist says here is, we have to remember the New Testament did not exist at this time. So people that he's speaking to, Jews that are going to hear this, they're only thinking in an Old Testament perspective. And so we love, and we're going to read it, we love to go ahead to Revelation 5, uh, 6. It says 9, it's supposed to be 6. So we love to go ahead to Revelation 5, 6 through 9, really, and, and look at, and, and then go to 13. 6, 13 is a beautiful passage. And I definitely think that is talking about Jesus. But understand that these people haven't read the book of Revelation. John hasn't written 
the book of Revelation when, when, when John the Baptist is saying this. And so there's, so there's a lot of Old Testament things about lambs. And, and so you may go, what, what does he mean when he says Lamb of God? When we hear that, we instantly go, oh, it's one of the names of Jesus. Well, they didn't know that. So I want to I look at a couple passages. I want to talk about what they heard and then what we hear when we hear Lamb of God. Genesis chapter 22, 8. This could be one of the things he's referencing. Abraham said, you probably know this story, Abraham, Isaac, uh, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, man, what a, what a scary day to have to do that, try to do something like that. And, and, and he, he's heading up the mountain and his son says, hey, um, we're missing something. We, we don't have a, a lamb to sacrifice. And in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And we know that right as Abraham rose the knife, an angel spoke up, and a lamb was right there, stuck in the thicket. And he was able, and God provided. And so maybe maybe this is what they hear when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Maybe they hear, uh, we're not going to go over all the passages, maybe, hear, maybe they hear the Passover. Remember the Passover? It's the ten plagues, and, and uh, you know, maybe you saw the Disney movie, Prince of Egypt, and, and it's the ten plagues, and it's, and it's the last one where the firstborn gets killed, and they were told that you have to put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost, and then death would pass over. But see, maybe they heard that, but I think it's even bigger than that, because it's not just passing over sin, it's getting rid of sin. The, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is what it says. So I think is bigger than that. So we, maybe they heard Isaiah 53, 7 when he said it. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There's a great story about this I heard one time. Um, a, a missionary to the Philippines uh, in the jungle. He's there in the jungle and he's trying to share the story of God with these people. And so what he did is he did what's called chronological Bible storying. Oh, that's just a fancy way of saying telling the story of Bible in order. And so he would start because they didn't have Bibles. He didn't have Bible in their language, this missionary. And so he would study and he would for a week, he would study his lesson and, and translate it into their language. And he would come and teach them from the beginning, from Genesis. He would teach this whole story of the Bible. And, and see, what's cool is when he got to Leviticus and he starts talking. When we get to Leviticus, we kind of go, oh, weird. okay. But when they got to Leviticus and it started talking about these sacrifices, they understood that. They lived in a world where you did that. And so it started to make sense to them. And they started to go, okay, we can do this. We've got pigs and we've got chickens and we can sacrifice them and we can have favor and honor with God. And, and the missionary said, no, he doesn't want your pigs and your chickens. And, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looked at him and he said, he wants a lamb. I said, well, we don't have lamb. I mean, where do we go to get a lamb? Can we go to the coast? Can we order one? Can we go to the city? We'll, we'll make the trek. We'll take the journey. How do we go and get that lamb? And he said, just wait. And he continued to chronologically tell the story of the Bible. And then he gets to Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth and he told him, you don't need to go buy a lamb because the lamb is coming. And so they started to get excited because they wanted this. And so when he finally made it to the Gospels, 
And this missionary read to them and told them that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God is here. That they erupted. He's here. He's here. This is what we've got to understand. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. For us, we've heard it so many times. We may lose the weight of what's happening here. See, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we're not going to go there, but in Leviticus 12 and 13, there was this deal where if, if you became unclean, you, you had to leave the camp. You had to leave the village. You, you were gone, and you had to go through these rituals and these processes, and you had to go to the priest, and you had to go through these cleansing processes, and you had to make these sacrifices to be declared clean. And you would then be declared clean, but you know what you had to do beyond that before you could enter back into your house and your community? A lamb. See, there was one sacrifice that helped you get cleansed before the priest. But the only thing that we see in Leviticus that could get you back into your community, reconciled into your relationships, restored into your community and your family and your house, was a lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He can restore all things. That's the business of Jesus, is restoring all things. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at the New Testament a little bit. So now, when we hear Lamb of God, what do we hear? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 through 4 and 11 and 12. But in these sacrifices, there is reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, this is not just any lamb. This is the lamb of, from God. See, we can make sacrifices and we can do things, but only the God of the universe could do something that could take away sin. So this is not just any lamb. This is not just a lamb that restores you back in the community. This is far more than that. He is the lamb that can take away all the sins, and only God's lamb could do that. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. This is beautiful. This is beautiful imagery in Revelation about there's no one worthy to open the scrolls and, and it's this dramatic scene. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and sent out into all the earth. You read on and you see in verse 13 that the lamb opens the scroll. This is a powerful lamb. Behold, behold the lamb of God. See, in church, I think so often we, um, we hear things so many times. And they just, they lose their weight. If you were, anytime you're surrounded by something all the time, it, it quits, it loses its majesty a little bit, doesn't it? Um, you know, living in New Orleans, there are so many 
for so many years. There are so many unique things about the city of New Orleans. Um, there, there's so many people who have said it's one of the most unique cities in the world. But after you've lived there for a long time, you forget about all those things. And then your friends come visit you and they're wide-eyed the whole time they're walking around and seeing everything. And, and maybe they're scared and they're putting their wallet in their front pocket. And, and, and you forget that all these things aren't normal. And, uh, and maybe, maybe your family's that way. I know uh, my in-laws are here today. And I know when I first started to get to know my in-laws, they're very different than my family. And, and so, you know, you, you forget that some things aren't normal. I thought that the way we did Christmas was normal. I thought, I thought the way my family is loud about everything was normal. You guys think I'm loud? You need to come to a family reunion. I'm one of the quiet ones. And I, look, our Christmas gathering, there's like 70 people there. It's a whole production. We put on a play. Somebody preaches. There's a massive amount of, it's this huge, massive deal. And I thought that's what Christmas was about. Like my whole life. And then I went and visited and, and I'll go to my in-laws and we had, uh, we had pizza and, 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 and barbecue and, and we exchanged gifts. And I thought, what in the world is this? Where's the play? Where's the pageantry? Where's the production? When we live in something, we think it's normal. And, and what, I, what I don't want us to do as we go through the gospel according to John is read lightly over these things like Lamb of God, Son of God that we see there in the end. You have to understand when he says Son of God, that's huge for him to say that. Do you know one of the things that made the Pharisees so mad about Jesus? That he claimed to be the Son of God. That was one of the most offensive things he said was that he was the son of God because only the Messiah could be the son of God because that would make you in line with the father. And so when he said he was the son of God, boy, that was, them was fighting words. So when John the Baptist declares this, this is no small thing. We can't look over this and because we've heard it a hundred times, forget the weight of what this would have meant to the hearers. He was the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. First John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. In order for this to work, it had to be a flawless, spotless lamb. See, it wasn't just any lamb. The, the quality of the lamb that you sacrificed equated to the quality of the redemption you would get. If you wanted to be restored fully back into your community, you had, to, you had to look amongst your lamb, your sheep, find the best one, man. Find the best looking, most flawless, the, the most valuable, the one that would cost you the most personally to give. You had to sacrifice that. And it tells us that he was the perfect sacrifice in him. There was no sin. First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." 
He purchased you. You're His. He paid the price for you. Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's a section in Romans chapter 5, if you read, I think, starting in verse 12, going through about verse 19. Uh, that a big fancy, ready for a big fancy theological word? It's called the imputation. The imputation of Christ or the imputation of sin. Basically what that means is through Adam. So Adam and Eve messed up, right? I mean, they, they kind of royally messed things up for us. Um, and, and through Adam, that sin was, it's called imputed upon us. We inherited that, like an inherited trait. We inherited that sin. It was imputed upon all of us through one man. It says through one man, Adam. Now, now, key thing here I want you to pay attention to now in your marriage. Married men, listen up. Go back to Genesis. Who was the first one to mess up? We see Eve takes the first bite, right? We see Eve takes the first bite. But when we get to Romans 5, who gets the blame for messing up the entire world? Adam. Adam does. Not Eve. Because you know where Adam was? Standing there, not leading his wife. So just a little side sermonette here for you, men. You are responsible for the spiritual growth and depth of your family. You. One of the things you will be held accountable to is how you led your family spiritually. That's what I see here. Eve took the first bite, but when Romans 5 talks about who screwed up the entire world, it lists Adam. It says, through one man... Through one man, we all have sin. And then through one man, we all can have righteousness. That's good news. Behold, the Lamb of God, take away, to take away the sins of the world. Romans 8, chapter 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, something I want you to pay attention to. You can leave that one up there. Leave Romans 8, 3 up there for a second. He says that uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. All right. Here's something we need to understand about how Christ takes away sin. The Lamb of God takes away sin. One, we said he has to be perfect without spot or blemish, right? Okay, so who can do that other than God? No one. It has to be God. It has to be the Lamb of God. It has to be God because only God can do life without sin. But then it also has to be a man because it's man that messed it up. So it's got to be one of us to step up and take the cause. It's got to be one of us to step up and take the price. But that one of us has to be perfect. So there's really only one way that this whole thing could play out, isn't there? There's really, some people get frustrated when we say that Jesus is the only way. 
There really is only one way that this works. There's only one way that this works, and it's the Lamb of God. Perfect, spotless, without blemish, God himself, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, don't get confused by that word likeness. Some people would say that maybe Jesus didn't really become a man. Maybe he just appeared to be a man. That word likeness doesn't mean that. It means, it's a Greek word that really means in the form of. In the form of a man being the the substance or the essence of. So in other words, being a man. Now, it was the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful flesh, but he was flesh. He was flesh and body and bone and organs. And he got tired and he had to go to sleep and he got hungry and, and, he, and he had to go use the bathroom. And he was a human in every way that a human is other than he was perfect without sin. That's the only way this works. The Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. John chapter 11. This is a great passage. I love what happens here. John eleven forty nine through 53, to see him take away the sins of the world. So this is during Jesus' trial. And, and this is, this is I, I love this story because Caiaphas did not have the best intentions. Yet, God used him and said something powerful through him. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, super important that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into, the, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Catch this for a second, what's going on here. They're plotting Jesus' murder. They're seeing him as a threat. And so they're plotting how to kill him. And because he was the high priest, and so God would speak prophecy through him, he says this with ill intentions, with malicious intent, but he doesn't even realize how powerfully true what he's saying is, does he? It is better for you that one man die than that the whole nation, meaning all Jewish people, should perish. And it says not, not even just the Jewish people, not even just that nation, but the whole world would be offered salvation through this man's death. He has no idea what he's saying, does he? Here's why I get so excited when I read that. Because, man, there's some messed up people in this world that are trying to do some bad things. But I'm going to tell you what, God's pretty smart. And he knows how to use those people and their, their ill intent against Christians, against you, against your family. Maybe you think somebody's this horrible enemy against you or your family. Listen, man, let God do what he's going to do. They can do whatever they want. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So I look at stories like this and I laugh a little bit. Because sometimes we get so scared about what's going on in the world these days. Man, I'm not scared. My God is in control. My God will use those people and they won't even know it. He will use their ill intent for his good. At the end of the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, it says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. So bring it. Bring it. You think you can end this Christian life? You think you can end Christianity? Let me tell you something. Read your history books. Every time anyone has ever gone and tried to persecute the Christian church, including today in many places, the Christian church thrives under persecution. Thrives. So bring it. Make your laws change things. Make it inconvenient to be a Christian. That's fine. God's going to use it. I'm not worried about it. He is the Lamb of God. Now, one of the things that we see here is he does talk about baptizing water and baptizing with the Holy Spirit. So real quick, I want to look at baptism. Now, we know that he was baptizing because God told him to, right? We read that just a minute ago, didn't we? We read that he said, the one who sent me to baptize with water. So, so a lot of people want to know, why is John the Baptist baptizing? Well, very simply put, God told him to. That's why he's baptizing. Now, is there a precedent of baptism prior to him? There is. There are several cultures that do some baptism. There are several um, things that, that could be linked to it. And so perhaps uh, he, he took those and he adapted them. We, we don't exactly know uh, the origin of exactly how he did it, but we know he did it right because Jesus did it, right? And so if he were doing it wrong and Jesus showed up on the scene, I think Jesus, you know, something that's going to be an ordinance for the rest of all time in the church, I think Jesus would have corrected him. But he didn't. As a matter of fact, Jesus put a big old stamp of approval by participation. Now, some things we do see, Ezekiel chapter, and one thing we do see in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. I love this. This, this may reference to baptism, it may not, but it's beautiful imagery that we can, we can still link to baptism, I think, either way. I will sprinkle clean. Now, don't get, don't get mixed up with that. We do immerse. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So, so there, was, there was this idea where when maybe someone who wasn't Jewish ethnically, uh, a Gentile, wanted to come into the faith of Judaism, they could. There actually was an option that you could do that. And, and when you did that, you were baptized. Uh, and, and usually, maybe then it was a sprinkling, but we do know that what John the Baptist is doing is full immersion. Because he uses the word there is baptizo, uh, which, which means immersion. It means full immersion. Now, let me, let me clarify something for you here. Baptism does not, in any world, equal salvation. It doesn't. So, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I was sprinkled. If I die on the way home, I'm not going to be in heaven. Let me clear up for you. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... You will, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
But, on the other hand, this is one of the first and most simple steps of obedience that Christ calls us to. And so I've heard it said like this, not that baptism equals salvation, but if you're not even willing to take that first step of obedience and you're going to tell me you are his disciple, I don't think I'm wrong to question that a little bit. If you're going to tell me that you have changed your life and become a disciple, a follower of Christ, and yet you ignore his first and probably one of his easiest commandments, I I am in some degree going to question your devotion and whether you truly are a follower of Christ. But baptism does not equal salvation. Mark chapter 1 verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why do we get baptized? It represents something. It's kind of like my wedding ring. I just took it off. Because I took it off doesn't mean that I'm single. I'm still married. Right? But it's a symbol. It's something public. It's something, and it's maybe even more so, maybe like your wedding day. Right? You, 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 you come, the, the thing that actually makes you married is the marriage license, not the ceremony, right? And, and so, but you do the ceremony because you want to make this public proclamation of your love and your devotion to your spouse. This is what baptism is it's a representation of that, but it's important. Let's read Romans 6 1 through 4. Uh, one thing we see in this is, is Paul is writing to the Roman church. Now, understand. Paul had not been to the Roman church. He didn't plant the Roman church. We see that he keeps wanting to get to the Roman church. Uh, when he writes this, he hasn't gotten there. And, uh, but he assumes that they've all been baptized. What that tells us is that baptism was a regular practice in the first century. That Christians everywhere got baptized when they became Christians. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. Therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Several things we see in this. One, I think we see a good argument for baptism by immersion because of the imagery here, because of what it represents. And, and I think imagery is, is beautiful. Uh, and, and, and what we see here is that it's, it's death and burial. And, and so when we baptize somebody and we take them all the way under, we're burying them. It represents their death and burial. And just like Christ's resurrection, we raise to newness of life. Maybe you've heard me or somebody say that when they do baptism. That's, that's what they're referencing is Romans 6 and, and this idea. And so we've got to think about that and what that means. Now, the first thing that it says is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul answers, by no means. Now, he answers with the Greek word meganunto which actually is much stronger than what we have there in the English. Um, it, it's a very, it's almost, if not an expletive. It, it's this, this heavy, hard 
absolutely, there's no way. This, you can't, like he's very heavily emphasizing this idea of no. Shall we sin, keep on sin, continuing to sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. By no means. That's not even acceptable. To, to think like that may even be evidence that you haven't really become a follower of Christ. So, we see here a couple things in this passage today. First, we see, behold, the Lamb of God, and what that means, the weight of that idea of Lamb of God. Let that rest for a second, that idea, the perfect sacrifice, the God-man, to take away the sins of the world, a perfect sacrifice. Listen, there's only one way this really works. And that's God's way. We sometimes want God to bend to our will and to our way. He's smarter than us and he's got a way that it works. So we should submit to that. Now we see that he says that he baptizes with water and Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We could go deeper into that um, if you want. Um, Tomorrow morning, I'm always 7 o'clock tomorrow morning at What's Cooking right across the street uh, to go further into the things that we talk about here on Sunday morning. And so we, we can dive into that tomorrow morning at breakfast, the difference between that baptism, but it's really, it's not so much the difference in the baptisms and the difference in the people that are doing it, if that makes sense. And, and, and really, Jesus doesn't actually baptize anybody. Jesus has the Holy Spirit and imparts the Holy Spirit onto believers. Uh, the quick answer to that is to look at the Old Testament and see that the Holy Spirit really only rests on prophets. But now, as children of God, we all, we all get to have the Holy Spirit rest upon us, every one of us. So, a couple of ways that we can respond this morning. One, if you haven't followed that step of obedience into what we call believer's baptism. Well, the reason we call it believer's baptism is because we're convinced that it is something to be done once you become a believer, a follower of Christ. I think that's a clear scriptural idea. Uh, if you grew up in a different tradition and, and maybe you believe in infant baptism, um, we can talk about that. The, the quick answer I'd give you to that is if you can find me anywhere in church history before 175, 200 A.D., that you find infant baptism in the church before that, then, then I'll, I'll stand corrected. But we don't see it in history till about 200 years later. This is a, it became a historical tradition. Now, does that mean that people who are baptized as infants aren't saved? No, it doesn't mean anything like that. But what we do know is that in Scripture, baptism is something that is a response, a public response to following Christ. So if you haven't taken that step, maybe you've become a Christian, but you haven't taken that step of obedience since you've become a Christian, or maybe you haven't even become a follower of Christ, and maybe you need to take that step this morning. Uh, I'll be here for that. Maybe you, you hear this idea of behold the Lamb of God, and you've had a smaller idea of God than he really is. I would challenge you to expand your idea of who he is. Think larger of who he is.